Ted has asked me to preach about today is a little unusual. It's uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. So I'm glad I didn't have to pick the passage because this is not, uh, not your everyday story. So let's read it together. Lord, as we read this passage, we pray that you'd speak to us and that we wouldn't just dismiss it as some crazy thing that happened in the early church, but help us, Lord, to take the story seriously and speak to us today. Guide me in all that I say, Father. Prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the, the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, lots of questions come to mind when we read this passage, don't they? You think to yourself, well, isn't this a little bit hectic? <laughs> yeah, is, this, is this a typo? It, it sounds a little bit like the Old Testament. Why weren't they given a chance to explain, you know, mitigating circumstances? Sapphira doesn't even have a chance to go to her husband's funeral. You know, he's buried and it's all taken, taken place before she finds out he's dead. So we're going to wrestle with these issues today, but I don't want the emphasis today here to be on these two people dying, because there's so much more to this account than two people dying. Okay, so what, what's the context here? Because we always need to understand Scripture in context. What's the background? Well, there's a great move of God happening in this early church the Church of Acts, there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and people are really beginning to share with each other, as we should. We read about that in Acts chapter 4, and I'm not going to read it all to you, but verse 32 is significant, 
All the believers were one in heart. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything that they had. So that was the ethos of the church at this point. Generosity and sharing. Verse 34 tells us that there were no needy persons in the early church. And we're also told in verse 36 that Joseph, also known as Barnabas, he'd sold the property and brought all the money and, and given it to the church. So these things are happening. I do want to point out that this is not an example of communism. People often refer to the Bible and say, you know, Jesus taught us to... Well, Jesus did teach us to share. But this is not communism because no one was being forced to do anything here. This was a voluntary sharing of possessions with others. When a government forces people to do that, that's a different story. That's not what's happening here. This is, a, as I said, a, a work of God. People are freeing up money that is locked into property, and they're using that to, to, for ministry purposes. So who is this couple? Okay, back, back to the first word that I read, now. So as the story of Ananias and Sapphira is introduced in Acts chapter 5, it's linking it back to this description of generosity in the church, this great move of God. But who is this couple? Are they just pretending to be Christians? Is that what's going on here? Because they're, they're really doing it pretty well if they're pretending to be Christians. Particularly if there's a little bit of persecution here in the church. I think Ananias and Sapphira definitely are Christians. But as we all know, Christians can sin. Christians can be deceived. Christians can allow Satan to influence their heart. You only have to read the news headlines to know of sin in the church. Just this last week, the highest ever Vatican official lost his appeal in Australia and is going to remain in jail for a while for uh, pedophilia. Uh, his name is George Pell. He, he's actually the treasurer of the Vatican. Well, held that position. And the Pope is yet to sanction him, but that's the, the civil ruling. So we just have to open the newspaper to hear about terrible sin in the church. And the evangelical church is no different. I mean, one of my daily disappointments is, is reading a Christian news headline site and discovering who the latest pastor is to, to, to implode. Um, so, so sin is happening in the church, in churches all the time. I'm, I'm just sharing this not to kind of put a damper on things, but just to show you that Ananias and Sapphira are not, are not some weird people just infiltrating the church. These are, these are genuine believers. They wouldn't be part of a, a, a persecuted church. They wouldn't be selling property and giving money to the church if they didn't believe in, in Christ. So these are believers. Another thing I do want you to note is that um, this was the judgment of God that they died. 
Okay, this is not a coincidence. This, this is not a family with a very bad diet, and they were both kind of that close to having heart attacks, and just coincidentally, the shock of hearing they've been caught out, and they both dropped down dead. That's not what's happening here. The, the, the Bible clearly indicates they died because God judged them. Okay, so straight away, this is now, if you accept my little thesis here, that these are Christians, and I think the text is very clear that that's, they were part of God's people, they were caught up in this move of sharing, they were true Christians, and they are judged by God. And another little factor I just want to highlight, though it's very obvious, this is the New Testament church we're talking about. This is after Pentecost, this is after the death and resurrection and I know it's, it's God's judgment because of what we read here in, in verse 4. You know, Peter, as he's kind of dishing out the sentence, as it were, is clear that, you know, God is at work in the situation, in this judgment. So another little question for us is, did they now lose their salvation? Or will we see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven one day? It would be actually quite interesting to have a little vote here, but... I, I, I won't ask you, but my belief is that we will see them in heaven one day. And Brad agrees with that. As does Tom, I believe. I saw a nod. Perhaps. Unless he's beginning to doze off. <laughs> um, so this is not like Judas Iscariot. Where, where Judas is kind of the son of perdition, he betrays Jesus, he commits suicide, and the Bible tells us Judas is lost forever, as it were. This is a different situation. So before we get back to that idea, I just want to explore with you what sin this, this couple committed. And I think that we can rule out that the problem wasn't that they didn't give enough money to the church. We can rule that out. That's not the sin issue here. Peter is very clear in these verses, verse 4. When he challenges Ananias and Sapphira, he says, didn't this money belong to you before it was sold? You know, when you owned that property um, and before you liquidated the money, that property, that money belonged to you, and there wasn't a problem with that. And then to make it crystal clear for us, Peter says in the second part of verse 4, and after it, sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, you didn't have to sell the property, it does belong to you, and even once you'd sold the property, the money still belonged to you. They could have easily said, look guys, we, we, we've sold the property uh, for a million rand and we're going to give 300,000 to the church and we're, we're keeping 700,000 to do something else with it. I mean, I'm just using today's terms here for us. The, the sin issue wasn't how much they gave. And we know that the scripture teaches also in places like 2 Corinthians 9 that each person should decide in their heart what they want to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a, a cheerful giver. So, so the amount they gave 
was not the sin. So what was the sin? Well, the, the, the verse points this out to us. When the sin of Ananias, verse 3, Peter says, How is it that Satan has filled your heart? That, that's getting to, to the root of the problem here. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. So this seems to be the issue. Satan has, has got a hold of your heart. You've, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. This is what is the judgment for. Not the, well, you sold a property and you didn't give it all. Bad. Sapphira, the, is a, is, what, what was her sin? Well, clearly, and to use some legalese, there is a conspiracy to lie here. This is premeditated. They've said, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to say. There is definitely an agreement to lie. There's also an outright lie. When she's confronted, is this the price of the property you sold? She's, yes, it is. That is the price. So there's an emphatic lie being told. And that's described in the text as, as testing the Spirit of the Lord. So when I read this passage, I see that there are two areas of sin. And it's these two things that I believe this couple is judged for. The, the first thing is that they have pride. It is pride going on here. Because they are trying to impress people in the church with how spiritual they are. That, that, that's the sin here. It's not the amount of money they did or didn't give. It was pretending to be more spiritual than they actually were. And it was propping up that facade and trying to pull a fast one on everybody. So that's the first thing. And why were they trying to do that? Maybe they suffered from low self-esteem. They want people to like them. They want people to think they're great Christians. So that's the first sin I see here. The sin of pride. And then the second sin is, is much more subtle. It's, it says there's a spiritual dynamic at play here. So I was thinking to myself, well, what is this all about testing God? What do, why do they keep referring to, um, blah, 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 you have lied to the Holy Spirit? So I was, I was trying to make sense of, because it's this thing that Peter highlights. You've tested God. You've, you've, you've tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. And thinking about this, and this is a little conclusion I've come to, and hopefully it's helpful to you. But there was a powerful experience of God's presence in the church. It was, I don't want to say unusual, but it, it, was, it was awesome. This was a very special time in a very special church. And clearly the presence of God was, was very evident in their worship services. And it was in that environment, before the, the Holy God, where everyone was sensing His presence, it was in that context that they committed the sin of pride and, and they lied and they sought to deceive. And I think that it was the, the spiritual environment that, that made their sin all the worse. It wasn't a sin done in a dark corner, privately at home. This was a sin done in the church among God's people when the presence of the Lord was, was present. 
So I think these were the two sins. It was the spiritual dynamic at play of sinning in a holy place and, and also pride. Jesus warns us in the Sermon of the Mount against pride, against doing our acts of righteousness in front of people to impress people. That's what the Pharisees did all the time. Jesus addresses the issue of giving. When you give to the poor, don't make a big song and dance about it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Why do we want to impress people? And all of us at times suffer from this, wanting to appear good and have the acclaim of people. I believe we, we're tempted to, to do things that impress other people when we when we're not feeling that good about ourselves and who we are, when our identity is not grounded and founded in, in Jesus Christ, that's who gives us worth. It's not what other people think of us. It's not our accomplishments. It's not the clothes we, we wear, the people we hang out, where we live. That's not what can give us a sense of identity. Wanting to impress people. That's what Ananias and Sapphira wanted to do. And I've just jotted down, a, a, I just brainstormed. What are some of the ways we can try to impress other people in the church? I think it can happen sometimes when we give testimonies. You know when people just exaggerate a little bit when they're giving a testimony? When we, when we act very spiritual, you know, there's a spiritual kind of a, you know, demeanor that some people can put on, but there's also the real thing. We can feign emotions that we're not really feeling. Anything that we do that's designed to impress other people, to show them how spiritual we really are, I think is, is akin to what was happening here with Ananias and Sapphira. And then let's talk a little bit more about verse 3. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. They, they agreed to, to test the Lord. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart? This was a demonic temptation. This is not just, sometimes we sin and it's just our selfish nature. And that's enough for us to sin. But sometimes there is a spirit or Satan gets involved. Satan first tried to destroy the church from outside with persecution, and that didn't work. Now he's trying to destroy the church from inside with pride and falseness and hypocrisy. And I think this is why there is the, the severity of the punishment. Because the punishment does seem hectic. I mean, what an awesome word of knowledge. Bear, we've caught you guys out. This isn't the full price. Now, don't do it again. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira would have been very good Christians from that moment on. But there's this hectic response where, where God judges them. It, it reminds me of stories in the Old Testament, like when Uzzah touches the ark. and Who? He dies. He dies. When the prophet was called a bald head and mocked by a group of youngsters, God sent a lion or a bear and just took these, this whole youth group right out. 
There's the other story about a prophet and a lying prophet. And he just has lunch with someone he shouldn't have had lunch with. And a lion comes and eats him. There, there are times when God seems to judge people very harshly for some sins. And then at other times, God doesn't seem to judge people. Um, I think some sins are worse than other sins. And the context of sins is somehow can make them worse. And this was a sin that happened among a spiritful people in a holy place, in a holy moment. And I believe that's why God judged them so severely. Did they lose their salvation? I already touched on this and I believe... They didn't. This was a Christian couple. They were members of the body of Christ. So in trying to make sense of this and researching it, I came across this verse in John's letter, 1 John 5. And I'm sure it will confuse you as much as it confuses me. <laughs> but let's read what it says, because I think it sheds light on the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This is what John writes. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. So this is a very confusing verse. And I'm not sure I've, I fully understand the verse, but here's my thoughts at this, at this point. I think this verse shows us that some sins are worse than other sins. I know when we grow up in, in Sunday school in the church, we're told just one tiny sin is enough to you know, spoil your record with God, and it is. And it would just take one tiny sin to render you unholy for God's presence. But certainly there are sins that are worse than other sins. Not all sins are the same. So there's a category of sin that is mentioned here by John. There are those sins that don't lead to death. In other words, those are sins that we can pray for one another when we see those sins in our lives and in the lives of others. They're sins that aren't going to result in God killing us or our lives coming to an end because of how we're living. But then it appears there are certain sins that do lead to death. And who you are and what you know and what you've been blessed with and your gifting and what God's done in your life are all factors. Because those that know more judged more harshly. That's also a spiritual principle. Reminded me of the verse we so often read before we take communion. Where Paul talks about some people in the church that have died. They've obviously been committing the, the sin that that leads to death. Again, we're not entirely sure what the sin is. It, it can be debated in some way. But, but Paul says, before you have communion, we must examine ourselves. 
He says, if anyone eats and drinks without recognizing the body of Christ, again, it's, it's a, in a holy moment. And if you participate in spiritual activities, you're in a holy place, in a holy moment, and your heart's not right, and you're, you're doing it in a casual way, you're not discerning the body of Christ who died for you and the body of Christ, His church. Paul says, this is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number have even fallen asleep. These are people who do commit the sin that leads to death. And we know God tries to, to stop that and to restore it. Now, here's an even additional difficult scripture to, to understand. But I do want to, to tackle it, because it also has relevance here. And part of the series today, I'm meant to be dealing with accountability and discipline in the church. But this was the passage I was given. 1 Corinthians 5, it's, it's a fascinating passage. And, and in, in the Corinthian church, there was somebody, I believe, having a, a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Presumably his father's died but he's now having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And this is being tolerated in the church. So Paul writes, It is reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. So here we've got Christians sinning in a way that even non-Christians would think, Wow! A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. The Christians were patting themselves on the back saying, look how tolerant we all are. We, we even think this is a loving relationship. A man has his father's wife. They're proud of it. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the one who did this? Paul is saying this is unacceptable. Your, your response of being tolerant and proud and patting yourselves on the back because you're so accepting of this. He says, rather, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should actually be putting this individual out of the church. And then we get to the part that's very difficult to understand. Paul says, though I'm not physically present with you, I'm with you in spirit. And I've passed judgment on this character. As if I were present. Verse 4. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I'm with you in spirit. And the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan. So that the sinful nature may be destroyed. And then this is a key part of the verse. That we must all take note of. And his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So this whole action here of in the church, when we're sensing the anointing of the Holy Spirit, when we're all gathered, the power of the Lord is present. There's a sense in which the church is to take an action, Paul says. And in prayer before the Lord, ask the Lord to withdraw His blessing and protection off this character. So that Satan can now have a field day with this individual and, and make his life a disaster because that's what he deserves. And this is to happen, Paul says, so that his spirit can be saved. 
even though his, his life and his sinful nature may be destroyed. This is a, a desperate last resort action on behalf of the church. And the goal is that the individual can be saved. Another thing I see from this passage is that in the church, we need to take sin seriously. There are far too many churches today that are being tolerant of sin, particularly sexual sin, although we tolerate many other sins, and some things like gluttony, financial greed, these are sort of actually regarded, you know, aren't even seen as the sins they should be sometimes in the church. But we need to take sin seriously. That's what this passage is, is teaching us. And it is sin in the church that we need to be more concerned about. Paul writes, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? That's also the symbolism of the Passover feast, where people would have to clean their house before Passover and get rid of all the yeast, because yeast in the Bible is a, a symbol of, of sin and iniquity. And in the church, these people who are deep in sin need to be put out of the church because we love them, because they shouldn't have the blessing and protection and comfort of spiritual community. So that their souls can be saved. Don't you know a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. If there's sin in the church, we have to identify it, root it out. Otherwise it filters through and before you know it, the whole church has been affected. Paul's concern, and, and I love this, and it's important for us as Christians. Verse 12 is, is, so, is so important for us. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge the outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. This verse tells us as Christians that our job in life is not to run around pointing out the sins of non-Christians. If non-Christians want to live debauched lives, there's a sense in which they're welcome to do that. We, we're not to be there with a bit, big stick telling them what bad people they are. When I meet with people, whatever state or form they're in, if they're, if they're non-Christians, I don't judge them for their sin. I don't even want to talk about their sin. The issue is that they don't have a relationship with God. They're not believers. Let's talk about that. But when there's sin in a Christian's life within the church, that should be our focus. So I, I love this word. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? We mustn't worry about people outside the church and what they're getting up to, unless it's affecting the rest of society. But our focus should be on dealing with sin inside the church. And I close with Hebrews 12. See to it that no one misses out on the, the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance like a don't care attitude 
to the work of God and blessing in his life. Then there's this whole section. We haven't come to the mountain, but we have come to a mountain. And then it ends with, since we are receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, let's be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We must take sin seriously in the church. That's what the story of Ananias and Sapphira teaches us. God takes sin seriously and we think to ourselves, that's not so bad. Who hasn't fallen into the trap of trying to impress other people? But God took it very seriously. And then we read in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church. Nothing like the death in a church, under the judgment of God over a relatively small thing to get everybody on their toes. Even Jesus says, I will show you who to fear, Luke twelve five, Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear Him. And I think the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, is something that is sometimes missing in the church. Right. I'm done, so let's pray. Lord, this, this is a difficult story to understand. The whole thing of there being categories of sin, some sins that don't lead to death and some that do. Lord, we know that you loved Ananias and Sapphira. That you saw what was good in their actions. They did sell a property it was their intention to give something back to the community. But Lord, you, you saw the need to get rid of the yeast that would have spoiled the whole church. And you acted in a radical fashion. And we pray, Lord, that you would get rid of the yeast in our lives and in your church. Lord, we don't want to go out telling the world how bad they are. Help us to be gracious towards people in the world who, who are living ungodly lives. Help us to be gracious towards them. But Lord, help us to not confuse tolerance with a lack of holiness. Help us to walk this very fine line of being gracious to one another in the church, but also calling out sin. Lord, we pray that if there is sin in our lives and in our churches, that you, Lord, would shine your light on us and grant us the chance to repent and to change and to grow. And thank you, Lord, that the end goal is for the salvation of all of us. Thank you that you're a good and a gracious God. Help us to fear you, Lord, in the best sense of the word.
to have a huge amount of respect for you and to know that you're sovereign and that you hold our very lives in your hand. That every, every breath we breathe is a gift from you. So we worship you, Lord. We fear you, for it is the beginning of wisdom. And we, we, we live in the light of the grace of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Brad.